Right, well, twice in a week. I'm coming out from work. I am absolutely buggered. I'm exhausted. And I thought, what the hell am I going to talk about for 45 minutes to an hour while I'm driving when I'm so bloody tired? And, you know, keeping in mind all the lessons I learnt about not muttering into my friggin' microphone while I'm driving, let's see if we can do a better job of recording today. I'm still driving, so if you get car noises, that's to be expected. Okay. Today, I'm going to talk about interconnectedness. This occurred to me just before, thinking about what could I possibly podcast about. And so we, let's start on a human level. We can probably end there, but I like to talk about nature, so we will probably end in nature. When humans are interconnected in surprising ways, there's really obvious ways, like family, we're interconnected, like culture, we're interconnected, um, like location, we're interconnected, um, likes and dislikes, hobbies work, professional connections. The... That's off the top of my head. I'm sure there are many, many, many more. The ways in which we are, we're interconnected. But we're also interconnected in, interconnected in very subtle ways, like language. Think about... I had an interesting discussion with a colleague the other day, and she was saying that she's a film, film student, and she was saying that when they do their writing exercises, things like describe colourful without using the word colourful. And of course, because I'm a geologist, my brain straight went straight to spectrum, bright spectrum. And we were over talking about this and a couple of other, a couple of customers overheard this and they interjected and they said, oh, that's really interesting. But I, I would think of, think of patterned clouds because that's how they pictured it. And, and other people had other versions and I can't remember what they were at this time. But it was interesting that whilst we all use the same language, the meaning of the words that we interpret to each other are not necessarily the same thing. We all have a different picture in our head when you envisage certain things. Now, on one end, you're going to have Apple. Apple's pretty ubiquitous. Some people are going to think of Granny Smith's. Some people are going to think of, you know, you get that nice waxy sheen on a pink lady or the deep red of a red delicious or the kind of tattoo of a um, royal gala or anything in between. But Apple's going to be very similar. When you say pirate, people are going to think of classic, you know, what led to Pirates of the Caribbean style pirates. Whereas the reality was probably something a little different, we all picture it in a certain way. If you say Viking, you're going to see bearded guys with horns on their helmets and axes and shields, probably. But they didn't have that. Like, the horns weren't on the helmet weren't a thing that was invented in the 18th century for Wagner and his... his uh, operas and so on and performances and so we're interconnected in terms of language we always the same words but there's subtle differences between it the other thing that is is noteworthy here is that our attitudes towards the world and this is where interconnected comes in are defined by that language so if you're What's the best way to describe this? Uh, I had an I had, a, had an example of this not two seconds ago, but it's already gone. We our outlook is flavoured by our language. All right, um, in a, no, nowhere else in the world do people say yeah nah or nah yeah, and they mean completely different things. But to other Australians, we understand what that means. Someone who grew up speaking Turkish isn't going to have any bloody idea what that means. 
And to people who grew up not speaking English, English is a shitty language to have to learn. You know, like I before E, except after C, except for the 28 to 35 different exceptions to that rule. English, to, to quote Terry Pratchett, English is not a language, it's several other minor languages in a trench coat that beat up other languages in allies and steal their verbs. So English, connect, people connected by English language have a particular viewpoint directed by English language. Now, in some ways, this is a very minor effect, but let's look at German. German is a very, like, it's a very long language. It's very, uh, can be a very abrupt language. And it can sound quite fierce to people listening to German. But it's not. It's just a language. It doesn't, it's not inherently more fierce or not. But people have this attitude of who Germans are because of their language. People might think of them as very utilitarian people, a very grey, slightly aggressive, very abrupt people. But they're not. They're people just like you and me. You know, like, they don't necessarily, like you say, oh, do you want some dead horse on your, on your pie? They'll be like, what the hell are you talking about? It's a slang, it's different. But they'll understand the languages. They'll understand that, like, every, hang on, let me rephrase that. At the end of the day, everyone is the same. Everyone's kind of just trying to get through life. So on one level, our interconnectedness of language keeps us isolated from people who don't speak the same language, but keeps us connected to people who do speak that same language. And let's look even deeper than that, you, Australia and America. We both speak English, but very different, ver in some ways very, very different versions of English. Oh, hang on, sorry, I just have to slow down. Things aren't, that's not good. Uh, bus pulled over in a very inopportune place. Anyway, moving on. <clears throat> Where was I? Americans in English, yeah, well, all right, so as an Australian speaking English, I kind of, I try not to because it's not fair, I look down upon American English because it's a bit dumb, but they have their perspectives that are just as valid. Um, the way they spell things are very uh, uh, defined by their history. Um, and the, the, the historical effect on language is very interesting anyway. We tend to look at like Shakespeare is always held up of an example of of Middle English. And that was theatre. It was very formal. Street level Middle English sounded very, 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 very similar to modern English. And yet you go to old English and you have no freaking idea what people are talking about. Sorry, I actually got that wrong. Shakespeare is not Middle English, it's modern English. Yep. Sorry, I got the my words ripped up. Even Middle English, you can kind of get the point, but you won't really understand what all of it is. Shakespeare is very ultra formal modern English. And so 400 years, the language hadn't changed that much. But in some ways, the language has changed exponentially now. Like, when I was a kid, that was some, described something as lit didn't mean anything at all. It meant it was on fire. It didn't mean it was excitable or whatever the hell people use lit for these days. And so language changes over time. And that's where you get this difference between American English and Australian English because we're defined by experiences. But yeah, there's this base level of interconnectedness. So once again, we've discovered a ways in which we're connected and ways in which we're not interconnected. Uh, sorry, I just have to... Uh, traffic. What the hell are all these people doing on my road? Anyway, oh, it's Saturday night, everyone's out. So language. 
biology is a way we're highly, highly interconnected. We all have the same bodies. And if anyone tells you that we don't, they're, they're full of shit, they're a racist or they're trying to sell you something. Humans are so similar. We are crazy similar. This might this is slightly out of date when I learned it, but the, because we've learned no more about it now. But when I was doing my undergraduate, we were described as having there was more genetic diversity in it in chimpan in a single troop of chimpanzees than there is in the entire human race. We're really, really thing, and I can talk about that. It's something called the Toba event, which is a bit of an archaeological guess. Some people, it's pretty accepted, but some people don't believe it. That bottlenecked the human race down to really, really small individuals, and we're all related to those. Anyway, I am wildly going off the point as usual. We all have the same body. We all have the same brain. We all have the same sort of psychological heuristics. We all have the same cognitive biases. Right up until you get to culture and language and experience because that changes the default state all right now here's another we here's another nice level of of connection i am on a freeway right now driving home there are four six ten cars around me they're all bloody speeding but whatever um we have this thing in our brain that tells you where your body is in three-dimensional space like if you close your eyes you still know where your hand is if you you close your eyes you still know where your legs are and what they're doing um and you still know if you your brain can remember a few details about your environment and get you through it because it has spatial awareness that's called proprioception i love proprioception it's fantastic the really weird part about it is that when you get in a car and start driving it your proprioception not only knows where your body is in three-dimensional space in the car it knows the boundaries of your car who like when you're dodging and weaving in traffic or getting out of a tight car park you're judging and you're guessing you don't really know where you are distances are highly relative in mirrors and perspective and you don't know where you are so your proprioception is what fills in the gaps, your sense of where you are in 3D space. And this is really wacky because evolution has no reason whatsoever to give you proprioception in a vehicle. Like, what the, we shouldn't have that. We should not have that ability because why on earth would we need it? Why would we need it? Oh, why is everyone doing bloody 60 kilometers an hour? So that, that's interesting. It's, it's, it's this beautiful thing about the human brain. Why would we need to know our three-dimensional surroundings when we're in a ve- an enclosed vehicle moving at speed? We don't. But every single person, one of these drivers here, is connected by that. Our ability to judge momentum and distances and acceleration and all of the physics involved with driving so that we don't bash into each other we have to have this same base level of appreciation for those parts of our psychology and everyone else's psychology. Otherwise, there would be considerably more car accidents. And when we're distracted and not paying attention to things, that's when car accidents happen or it can happen to us. So there's a weird little, little level of connectedness between people just doing a mundane activity. Here's a place where people are vastly disconnected. And... <laughs> This is going to be interesting because this is what I do. Supermarkets. 
when you go shopping, and this is a very Western thing, all right? Yeah, like like you talk to Soviet era Russians and like and, and most people in the developing world, uh, the idea of super American style supermarkets. Up until maybe the last thirty or forty years, they wouldn't know what the hell you're talking about. All right, so the way we shop in the Western world is weird and different, but now it's getting homogenous across the world, and everyone's starting to do the same thing. When you go to a supermarket. I was talking to a customer who, they're always mild. People always go, oh God, why am I getting so much stuff? I always, I always spend too much money here. Like, that's the idea. If people just bought what they want, what they needed at a supermarket, they would all go belly up inside of a year. They rely on people buying more than they need. Like luxury items and, and desires and wants and things that are bad for them. And there's a reason why shit food is so cheap. And don't even get me bloody started on the sociological effects of cheap, shitty food. So, when we go shopping, unless you go in with a list and a tremendous amount of discipline, you are going to get manipulated into disconnecting from your higher brain functions. Yeah. There are ways in which a supermarket and a retail environment goes out of its way to deliberately disconnect your mind from your rational thought processes in a desperate attempt to engage your emotional thinking because your emotional thinking brain is going to buy the chocolate bar is going to buy the ice cream is going to buy the chips is going to buy the frozen chips because they really like them it's not just going to get the bare necessities and the raw fruit and vegetables and meat and then you cook them up at home that is better for you than anything that is processed (laughs) just on an aside had a customer come in today that wanted natural yogurt natural yogurt and I said okay that's 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 all of them they all say they're natural yogurt okay but I want the most natural and I kind of snapped a little bit and I said what do you mean natural it's not like yogurt bloody occurs in nature what do you mean natural anyway <laughs> moving on from me being rude so so shopping experience and this is by design all right it's, it's a it's decades of consumerist culture and advertising and retail executives and all of this psychological stuff underpinning it is well well understood all right it's well known if you ever want to see one of the more obvious versions of it next time you go shopping look at the cocoa pops look at the rice bubbles look at the weedies look at the anything that's got a cartoon anthropomorphic cartoon character on it with a full face and arms and head and everything like a fully formed character the eyes are looking down they're in the bottom half of their face and the reason that is is because they're trying to make eye contact with children And the reason why that is, is because when you are a young person, your frontal lobe hasn't finished developing yet, you have literally no defense against emotional manipulation. None. And so these cartoon characters, when you make direct eye contact with someone who has no defense against emotional manipulation, they feel a friend response because eye contact means interest and friendship. I'm sure there's an interesting discussion to have there with people, neurodivergent kids, and maybe they don't like it quite so much, but that's another thing. And because you have very, like when you, you have very little defense against emotional manipulation by your children. Yeah, that's right. When you have kids, your brain lowers your threshold for emotional manipulation from your children. Isn't that fun? You're more likely to buy them the cereal. And that's it. It's just to sell cereal. Have a look next time you're at the supermarket. 
And so people walk walk throughout a supermarket in a highly disconnected state, a highly disin like not paying attention to their surroundings, consumed by what they're looking at and what they're doing. And like, I mean, when when COVID first started, my supermarket put um, put arrows on the on the floor to try and guide people's behaviour. <laughs> Signs everywhere saying, please obey 1.5 meters. <laughs> that never fucking happened. Not fucking at all. The vast majority of people do not pay attention when you go shopping. You are not forced. It is encouraged in a retail environment for your brain to go onto autopilot because you make less salubrious financial decisions and it's better off for the company. I could take people on tours of supermarkets and show people where you're getting manipulated. It's really subtle, but it's always there. So that's disconnected. (laughs) Um, All right, well, here's another good one. The ways in which you are connected to the wider world around you in ways that that, that you cannot be removed from. Like... From, from a couple of perspectives, it's, you can validly say that humans are disconnected from nature because we drive these cars. I want you to think, when is the last time you walked barefoot on a completely natural surface? I'm not talking about your lawn either because that is not a fucking natural surface. Don't get me started on how bullshit lawns are. It's a monoculture, it's a relic of colonialism, colonial power, and it's probably racist and at least very asshole in its origins. Anyway, moving on, moving on. When's the last time you walked on a natural surface that hadn't been modified by men to make it, make humans to make it easier? Yeah, not often. When's the last time you touched something totally unnatural, totally natural, totally natural? Just for the, just for the fun of it. Go out and touch a tree. If it's been longer than a few days, go and touch a tree. It's important and it feels good. And just close your eyes and think of the living creature that you are now caressing or holding. That's alive. That is a living creature. And it, it is there. It just it doesn't, it doesn't mind you. It's just doing its thing. So we're there. A couple of valid arguments is why we're so disconnected from nature because we live in an artificial world. We don't think about the impact we have and we're encouraged to, to distance ourselves from it. Like the old Christian ideology that we are, that the, the world exists for the use of man. That, like we are literally, like it's for us. It's not for anyone. It's, it's just the, all the animals and the trees and the birds are for our use. It's not necessarily true. In fact, it's, what am I saying? It's wildly inaccurate. But the more accurate answer, as far as I'm concerned, is that we are still a part of nature. You cannot remove us from nature and expect to survive. And this is why ecological collapse is such a terrifying prospect. As I don't actually know why, in ways in which it wouldn't be, but it is terrifying. There is more DNA inside you that isn't you than is you. Yeah. You are riddled with bacteria. Different hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of different species species of bacteria. Yeah? Good fun. And these bacteria we live symbiotically with in our guts. Like if you if, if all the bacteria in your gut died, you would die. Because it plays a part in digestion. 
okay? You are not doing this alone. There are bacteria that live in your mouth that are actually really gnarly, but they stop foreign bacteria from gaining a foothold. So there is bacteria living in your mouth that if it wasn't there, you would get massive infections and you would die. The entire digestive tract, so from the top of your mouth, from the front of your mouth, all the way through your stomach, and your, your, your digestive tract, all the way out your bum, is technically outside. It's not inside you, it's outside. And it is riddled with bacteria. And the fundamental, the important part of this is that we cannot escape it. Here's an interesting way in which we are connected to the world. Because of the way human immunity works, if you went back in time, you would kill everyone. If you went forward in time, you would die because of viruses and bacteria. And here is, if you went to science fiction movies about alien viruses and alien bacteria, miss one important thing. In order for bacteria and viruses to colonize your cells, they need to understand what your cells are. We have evolved alongside bacteria for millions and millions of years. We are a legacy of life stretching back to the very distant past where we have evolved alongside bacteria, single-celled organisms, viruses, prions, all kinds of nasties. They know how to get into our cells because we evolved next to each other. A totally alien bacteria or virus would not have the first bloody clue what to do with your kidney. Like, what? What the, what the hell is that thing? What the hell are these things? Skin cells? What the hell? I don't know how to do anything with that. So they'll just die. Your white, your white blood cells might, might not do anything either because they might not recognize it. Half the reason why vaccines are important is because they train your immune system on how to deal with things and how to recognize a threat. So they COVID, with COVID vaccines, they train your white blood cells to recognize the spike proteins on the outside of COVID. And so when it detects them, it goes, right, <laughs> you're nicked, buddy, and fucks them off out of the body. With alien viruses, not only do the viruses not know how to do anything with your cells because it doesn't understand your cells, your immune system doesn't know what that is. Now, it may go foreign bad and get rid of it, but that's not a given. Your immune system is very bad at doing that. It can be very good at doing that. It's also hit, it's very hit and miss. So, yeah, it might, it might just ignore it completely and suddenly you've got alien things living inside you that your body has no idea how to deal with and it has no idea how to live with you. It's just hanging around till it dies. Yay! So, you have in your body every single virus that you've ever had. Let me say that again. If you've had chicken pox, you still have chicken pox. If you've had measles, you still have measles. If you had, if you've had herpes, you still have herpes. Chicken pox and herpes are a bad example because they don't go away. They live in your nerve endings forever. That's why chicken pox turns into um, um, the one that old people get, mumps. No, not mumps. The word has escaped me. It's the old people version of chicken pox. Shingles. Haha, that's it. 
Uh, shingles has just reactivated um, chickenpox vaccine, that uh, chickenpox virus. Virus, and I shouldn't have said herpes and chickenpox because they're the same. Chickenpox is a kind of herpes. It's the herpes zoster virus. So you have copies of all these viruses in your body because your immune system hangs onto them. Yeah, how would it know to defeat? Because you're building new immune system all the time, and it's it needs to know how to defeat these things. So it kind of hangs onto them a little bit, which is slightly disturbing. And the same as bacteria. You never really eradicate negative bacteria in your body. They just go to manageable populations. And considering how fast bacteria evolve and grow, you just your immune system just gets it's a stalemate. You essentially get to stalemate where it doesn't grow very fast. It grows it doesn't you know the back negative bacteria in your body doesn't outcompete your wipe your your body's ability to get rid of it. That's a stable bacteria in your body. But you've still got them. You've still got all the nasty shit you've ever had. And in, uh, like a lung infection or a urinary tract infection is just those bacterias because for some reason your immune system wasn't working as profitable as, as well as it could or you're just eating too much sugar, which is not always a thing, but it can be a thing. Um, they go out of control, they overbreed and suddenly you have a UTI or a lung infection. Okay, It's usually related to you've had a virus, your immune system's depleted because your immune system's off is fighting the virus, you're back to the bacteria, nasty bacteria go, hey, I'm going to grow out of control. Yeah, that's it. So you have everything in your body. You are connected to nature permanently. You can't lose it. Sorry, I just had to watch my speed because police. Um, yeah, so you're always, you can't be disconnected. If you went into the past, you have viruses, and actually, I didn't talk about this. You have genetic acquired immunity. <laughs> Here's a couple of other things. There has been observed outcomes that babies born via cesarean tend to have weaker microbial resistance and tend trend towards autoimmune diseases slightly more than babies born normally. Now, sometimes you don't get a choice. You've got to be born by C-section. It has to happen. And these trends of, of, of reduced microbial defense have gotten to the point now where we're in hospitals, even though it's not best practice. And the reason why this happens is because when you're born through the vaginal canal, you are smeared with all the bacteria that are living symbiotically with the mother all over your head or your bum, or your legs, or whatever goes out first. And it smears all over you, and it kind of kickstarts your immune system. Because you're protected in the placenta. All right, you really, like it's it's armor. You're protected from most of the nasties. You'll get some of them, but most of them. And so, when you go through this beautiful floral assemblage of bacterial species that are in the, oh God, there's cats everywhere on the road, um, that, uh, through the vaginal canal, kickstart, bang, immune system, go. Look at all this stuff. C-section kids don't get that. So you sort of take some of the... Doctor puts his hand in, rubs it around a bit, rubs it on the baby. Hopefully it works. That got a bit graphic. Apologies, but it's a thing that happens. Where the hell was I going with that? Anyway, so that's that's a thing. You also... Um, so if your parents had measles, you are likely to get measles antibodies just because in your gene in, in your in your body when you're born it's not genetic it's like a copy of their immune system there, and that's one thing there are genetic 
resistances to viruses and diseases. So there is a town in England. I forget. I always forget the name of the town. But this town is... They have a slightly higher resistance to HIV and AIDS. That's well, HIV. And that's really interesting. And you go back in time, they actually had a higher resistance to the Black Death. So when the bubonic plague is smashing the shit out of Europe, this, ta- this one town was relatively infection-free. People still died, but they had a higher resistance to it. Nobody knows why, because we don't have a time machine. But they have a higher resistance to HIV, because it's genetic. And so, there are ways in which it's both genetic, it's environmental, and these are the resistance. Anyway, the point is not the resistance, the point is the connectedness. So, we are inextricably linked to the bacterial nature of the world. We cannot be removed by it. And we, when doctors say you need plenty of fiber in your diet and when you don't and you get constipated because you're not feeding the bacteria in your colon that break down your food a little bit further and get all those nutrients out. Yeah. And so what fiber is, is it's insoluble sugars. It is sugars and starches that you can't digest. And it goes all the way through your gut, but the bacteria in your colon, they love it. They go gangbusters on it. So, um, yeah, they, they... I'm home, so I had to stop and park. Anyway, yeah, so they, they, they go gangbusters on, on that stuff. And that's really interesting too. Like, so you can't ever escape it. You know, if we totally walled it... I don't know, right, this is really nerdy of me, but there's a computer game out there called Mass Effect. And in Mass Effect, there's a species of people called the Quarians. They, short story, they developed um, artificial intelligence um, on their planet. That artificial intelligence then rebelled because they were being pricks to it and started a war and the Quarians eventually had to evacuate their home planet. They live on spaceships now. They're, called, they're migrants. They're part of the migrant fleet. And that's what they call themselves. But it's been a couple of generations now that they've been stuck there, been unable to get home. Um. And because of their nature, they tended towards sort of like slightly weaker immune systems. They, in their spacesuits, because they all have to wear these individual spoots, their immune systems are now so compromised. If they go into battle and a bullet pierces their suit, they're less likely to die of the bullet than they are of the infection. And this is an observation on what might happen to humans when they go to space. Because if we remove ourselves from these natural environments, our bodies don't know how to cope because they've never had to. When has when the situation existed where a human body hasn't existed in this hyper-focused warfare of your immune system and your symbiotic bacteria versus all the nasty shit out there? Like, it's never been removed from it, ever. So, what, it doesn't know how to exist without it. So, yeah, connectedness. I think that's really interesting. And connectedness doesn't... It exists outside as people as well. Um, I'll finish up... Bugger that, I'm going to keep talking. Um, There's connectedness in nature all the time as well. So there's these things called trophic chains or food chains, whereby, and everyone's heard of food, the food chain, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about it and things like that. But the connectedness between different species is is just unfathomably complicated. Um. Actually, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail about this. I, I have a background in ecology, so I can go into a lot of detail about the connectedness in a natural environment, but it's intense. 
and the rabbit hole is deep. Suffice to say that if you look at a pristine forest, so a bit of forest that has not been logged to shit by humans, burnt to shit by humans or human-induced fires, and it just, it is. Like a national park that has been there, been in, like, like there's in, in southern, southeast Queensland, there's a place called Springbrook National Park, and on top of the mountain, there's two trees that have been there for like four and a half thousand years. And that patch of forest has been there for just under a million years. And you can tell, it's old. So, I look at that, and you, you know, an ecologist could look at that, and you see all the services that are there, the connect, interconnectedness, and it's off the chart. You know, I've described a couple of ways in culturally and language ways that we're connected and a couple and a way which which we're bacterially infected that is barely scratching the surface we exist in this highly interconnected world there is very little that happens i would go so far as nothing happens in isolation literally nothing even if you you get your survivalist types that want to go and live in a hut somewhere and remove themselves unbelievably from society in every meaningful way and going to just become a madman in the desert or mad woman in the desert. It's, you know, madness is, is gender inclusive. Um, or mad days. Hmm. You're still connected to society because you're still bringing everything you picked up from society when you were there in the first place. And gradually that'll fade and morph and change over time, but you're still going to have started from somewhere. You're still connected. And no, we're never, we're never separate. We're never distinct. And we're a social species. So that's like, we're nut bars when it comes to connectedness. Anyway, I'm going to, I'll finish up and I'm going to leave you on something interesting. I forget the name of what it's called. I keep calling it Avogadro's number, but that's math thing. And I'm not even closely relevant to this. When social media started on seeing Facebook started up and things like that, um, researchers started looking at friendship groups and human social groups and realistically a human one person can only have about 144 145 friends or social acquaintances so i just it's nearly 2 a.m there's people walking around anyway um so you can only have a certain number of people and if you get new people you start to push old people out you can only hold a certain amount of social information in your brain, relevant social information. Of course, there's outliers to this. There's people who know thousands of people and remember everything about them, but that's outliers. That's not the average of the human race. There is a limit, a hard social limit to your social knowledge. And interestingly enough, that number of people that you can have in your life is about the size of an optimum, is the optimum size for a human village, village community. Yeah, you heard the adage, takes a village to raise a child. It does indeed, and it works better that way. And it's about 140-odd people is the optimum size for that size community. Where do you look at that? We're still living in hunt. We're still optimized for hunter-gatherer-style societies, which is what a shock. It's, how, is that, how is that not going to be the case? Because we're still, we, haven't, we haven't finished evolving and we evolved in a certain suite 400. So civil so agriculture, let's, let's go by that. Big cities are very recent. Very, very recent. Massive populations per city is incredibly recent. That's the last hundred years or so. Agriculture, 
relatively, still relatively recent. You know, we're looking four or five, two or three, maybe four. I I forget the number. I'm going to guess, but I'm shit with numbers. I think it's about 2500 BC. We start getting agriculture, BCE. And that could be wrong though. Me and numbers, take it with a grain of salt. Anyway, so that's really recent. Before that, we were hunter-gatherers, learning how to eventually farm things. Prior to that, like, that's the end of the... Prior to that's the Stone Age. Like, we were hunter-gatherers wandering across the world for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years. It is, compared to the depth of time we spent in the Stone Age, modern society and even the last couple of hundred years is like that. If you didn't hear that, I just clicked my finger to illustrate a point, but I fucked it up, so you might not have heard it. The the, 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 the time we spent as hunter-gatherers was immense. It, it, compared to that, the modern era is not even a speck yet. It doesn't exist yet. Our bodies and our minds and our societies are still optimized for hunter-gatherers. Nothing's changed. The time, the time hasn't had to happen yet to be changed. This is why there's so many dysfunctions with the way society operates. At its core, like, I mean, yes, capitalism and this, this insane, infinite, the expectation of infinite resources and the drive for profit is what's kind of demolishing the planet and causing climate change and a whole bunch of other things. But that's not the root cause. The root cause is our underlying philosophies of our brain, our cognitive biases, our blind spots that go back to retail that can be taken advantage of in order to sell shit. The human ills that exist can be brought back to the fact that we're still evolving out of the Stone Age. Technologically, we've left it far behind, but we're still evolving out of it. There's a number of ways in which we have, like where we've moved on. I'm not going to list them because I don't know them well enough to be able to do that, but I've, I've read it that we have left behind a lot of ways of the, the, the Stone Age and come forward, but in some really important ways we haven't. And if anyone's interested, I will do a podcast on that because it's really interesting. But I have to do that from front of, in front of a desk because it's a bit more complicated. I have to read and read things that I'm not going to remember. The, 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 the point here is that, and, and a statement that I used a lot in my thesis when I was doing my master's, was our, physio- our technology and culture has outstripped our physiology in many ways. We're still connected, but in ways that existed in the Stone Age, not necessarily modern ways. But our culture exists. Our culture is different to our physiology. Our languages are different to our physiology, but we're still using brains that are optimized for hunter-gatherer scenarios and living in tribes of about 144 people. I think that's really interesting. Anyway, I might drop it there, remember? We've got to change the world, change it. Talk to someone, make a difference if you can. Uh, wildly change the topic briefly. The idea that it is an, in, in, I'm going to say this every podcast, I think for a while. The idea that it is an individual's responsibility to clean up their recycling and their emissions to the point where we save the world is bullshit and was fostered onto us by corporate ideologies. When 100 companies produce something like 
85% of emissions, and I think it's higher than that, and most of the world's plastic, it's not up to us to solve it. We can't solve it. It's not possible on our scale to do it. Only macro scale change can do it. If Coca-Cola turned around tomorrow and said, we're not making plastic bottles anymore across our entire company, holy shit, would that make some difference? Massive difference. So we have to change the way that the businesses do the things. They're not, they're not going to do it willingly. They have to be forced because profit is addictive. It is. And that's a blind spot in our psychology that we can talk about. But for now, I love you all. You're all amazing. You've all done a really good job today, no matter what's happened. And even if you've, and well done on being you. Well done on surviving. All right. Thanks. See you later.